Right, Benedict. Now, I have to say, I do like Benedict. He's, he's somebody I happen to like. Uh, a bit of a strange character. We don't actually know a great deal about Benedict, but I include him here because alongside all the other greats like Augustine and Teresa of Avila and, and Teresa of Lisieux and St. John of the Cross, etc., etc., you could mention anybody. But there's something about Benedict which makes him one of the key figures in Western Christian spirituality. He is one of the early writers. Um, he was so influential that when he lived and the legacy that he left us um, set the tone in the Western church for the next thousand years. So imagine somebody who sets the tone for a thousand years in terms of Christian spirituality. Benedict is that man. We don't know a great deal about him as a person. What we do know comes from Gregory the Great, a, a great missional pope. It was Gregory who, of course, um, sent over the mission to this country. And he was also uh, a, a great man in his own right and wrote about Benedict. He was himself a Benedictine and wrote about Benedict. He's left us um, a, almost like a, almost a biography of Benedict. It's a bit like a, it's a bit of a hagiography, really. So we can't be sure precisely how much of what we hear from Gregory is um, is the truth. He's got some strange and bizarre stories in it, which are worth which are worth reading. Slightly off the wall, there's one about one story about a monk who Benedict manages to convince there's a dragon out to get him, which is a slightly odd story, but. Even in the middle of all that, all these stories which are very much of their time and context, what you pick up is that Benedict was a profoundly holy man and a deeply compassionate man, as well as somebody who was very ordered. Hence, this legacy to us, which is the rule of St. Benedict. So it's the rule of St. Benedict which Benedict wrote which is the greatest thing that we have been left with. And it was the rule of St. Benedict, which is all about the ordering and shaping of a, the life of a community in the light of Christ, which then set the tone for Christian spirituality for hundreds of years. What we do know about Benedict is that he came from a fairly prosperous family. Lots of these great figures came from fairly prosperous families. And then in a sort of prophetic flip over, they went and ploughed their own furrow and rejected the sort of the wealth and prosperity that they came from and discovered something new. Benedict was just such a person. And he was born in the fifth century from the, from the area around Rome, and he went to Rome to study. And what he discovered was that Rome was in turmoil. Uh, this is just after the collapse of the Roman Empire, of course. And um, the unthinkable had happened, which was that Rome had been sacked by somebody known as Alaric the Unthinkable, as it happens. And uh, so everything was, was chaos. People were living chaotic lives. There was no sense of the order of the Roman Empire. Things were falling apart. People were living dissolute, dissipated lives. And um, Benedict discovered that he did not like this. And he left Rome. And he went to live in the countryside outside Rome at a place called Subiaco. And he started to live as a hermit with the help of another hermit in, in the countryside. He wanted to be alone. 
But what happens, of course, is that somebody who, even if they say they want to be alone, if they are people of great substance and wisdom, they're not alone for long. And people started gathering around him and discovering that this was somebody who was doing something extraordinarily countercultural, prophetic. He was responding to the life of Christ in a new way. And people liked the order. There was an order about him. And he was starting to write rudimentary, um, if it, rudimentary rules, if you like. He had eschewed a local monastery nearby in the early days of monasticism. And he was starting to establish his own way of being. There was a rather unfortunate episode that he was invited to um, be an abbot of a monastery uh, at a place called Vicovaro, but one suspects that the rules he applied were just a bit too stringent for the monks because they tried to poison him, and, and he left. Um, and then after that, he did start a community around him, and then 12 more communities were established. They, they just started, they were just growing and growing, and he ended his days as the abbot of Monte Cassino, which, of course, is one of the most famous of the Benedictine monasteries and famous in the last hundreds of year, hundred years or so for other reasons, of course, a place of, uh, of siege during the war, Second World War. But there are things about what he left for us, the rule of St. Benedict, which are uh, inspirational. They were inspirational for the centuries that followed. He created order. He created a rule which was based on um, three vows, and the vows were obedience and stability. And this strange thing, which sometimes even Benedictines str struggle to define properly, which is called conversatio morum. This last one, conversatio morum, appears to be to do with being transformed by being faithful to the rule. So it combines something to do with um, commitment to living the rule of life. And a bit like what you were talking about, actually, about there is this kind of paradoxical thing where being committed to something which is stable and interior in some way itself brings transformation. Benedict starts off his rule by asking people to listen with the ears of their heart. And this is a, another hallmark of his spirituality. Listen, discern, don't just listen with this. Listen from the depths of who you are. Allow yourself to be stable, to be obedient and reverent and to be transformed. Mm -hmm. And he really didn't like, there were monks around of the day who were kind of free-floating, independent spirits. He spends quite a bit of time at the beginning of the rule saying, I really don't like these people. They, um, they, they're not accountable to anybody. They expect things from everybody. But nobody really knows who they are and where they come from. This, this obedience, this reverence to the rule, but not just to the rule, to God, this is where the action is, he said. And so he left us this beautiful rule. I say beautiful because I think it's rather, rather splendid. Some people read it and think, this is ghastly. How can you possibly live your life according to this? But this beautiful rule, which is based on 24-hour rhythm of worship and work, 
Um, and if you look at any uh, at the Benedictine rule, you'll see punctuated every few hours, the longest gap being during the night, of course, just for a few hours, not for many hours, you get this great rhythm of worship and work, life punctuated by prayer. His idea was that every single monk, every religious, should say the Psalms, all of the Psalms, every week. So people were absolutely steeped in scripture, absolutely steeped in it. And the, the rule itself is steeped in scripture. And what you get is this beautiful combination of practical living and worship and character. So he talks about what the abbot should be like. What sort of a person should the abbot be? Well, they should be people who, do, who walk the walk as well as talk the talk. They should be people who are noble and honest and godly. Nothing else will do. He even talks about what the cellarer should be like. So that's the person who looks after the booze. And these are people who should be godly and honest and people of integrity. So all the way through the monastery, he talks about how we shape our lives. These are the sort of people we need. This is the sort of worship we should have. These are the practical things you put in place. And actually lots of the practicalities do suggest that although he was a man of his time, 5th century, 5th, 6th century person with some of the peculiarities of things we would not recognise as being okay today, um, there's also a huge amount of compassion. So in the book of excerpts, there are a few little bits from the rule of St. Benedict. And we have here about the abbot. When somebody is appointed abbot, he ought to display all that is good and holy in his actions as much as in his words. In this way, he will use words to teach the more able disciples the commands of the Lord, while to those who are stubborn and less intellectually sophisticated, he will demonstrate the Lord's teaching by means of his own actions. That's pure, you know, in, in modern terms, that's pure formation. It's teaching and modelling. Teaching and modelling. This is a man writing in the middle of the 6th century. There are times when I read this and think, how incredibly modern this sounds. And then we have things about uh, how people should be clothed in the monastery, the brothers' clothing and footwear. The clothing given to the brothers should be appropriate for the conditions in the place where they live and the local climate, because they will need to wear more in cold areas and less in warm places. We believe that normally it's enough for each of the monks to have a tunic and a cowl, a woolen hood in winter, a thin or old one in the summer, and a scapula for work. <laughs> On their feet they should wear shoes and socks. Now, all this sounds very, uh, it is very regular, it's making things very regular. But in the middle of all these rules and regulations, it is about people being equal, for one thing, but also he says things like, if somebody needs to wear more, if they need more blankets, give it to them. Don't be too draconian about this. Make sure people get what they need. We think people should eat this much, but if they need more, give it to them. If they need less, well, that's fine. So what you get is the sense of this humane, flexed person who nevertheless writes this beautifully um, held rule of life. Now, all of this might sound very sort of 
old hat in some ways now. Old hat because the monastic orders are not exactly in their first flush of youth now. Lots of the monastic orders are suffering. But think of when this came into being. This came into being in Western Europe at a time of complete flux and turmoil when something which had provided stability for hundreds of years had broken down. And here was a man reaching into this world who possibly through his own, what suited him in terms of character, but also looking around him, looking at society and sensing that this is what we need. We need this shaping, we need this order. We can discern Christ in this ordered life. And this is what he put into practice. And so, for the next thousand years, the Benedictine rule held sway. And if you think, apparently, it's it said that in this country, there was nowhere in England more than about an hour's walk from a Benedictine monastery. Every hour, you would hear the bells ringing out across the country. Think of the, the culture. It, this land was steeped in Benedictine spirituality. So even though, yes, the actual hours held by the monks were held in the monasteries, everybody could hear the bells. Everybody knew when prayer was happening. It was simply part of this great held structure. So there's a very particular flavour and a very particular culture to Benedictine spirituality and monasticism. Now, of course, like anything that hangs around for long enough, it can get ossified and it can get corrupted. So, of course, as new movements came in in the monastic life, they were in reaction to Benedict. So you get the Dominicans, who moved about a lot. Benedict did not like that. You get the Franciscans, who were very much free spirits, who moved around about a lot and espoused poverty whereas lots of the Benedictine monasteries have, of course, become very rich powerhouses. So there is this great dynamic flow throughout all of Christian history where you get a movement springing up, getting life, bringing vigour, and this is where I come again back to, if you like, transformation, the dynamic nature, and then it, it sort of rolls like a wave, and then the next one comes along. That's worth remembering when we think of Christian spirituality because it's not as if there is some fixed model which drops from the sky and if we're fortunate enough we can pick up on it and draw on it. There is something about the movement of God's spirit in history and in people's lives which gives this great dynamic flow and how we capture it and respond to it is part of our own journey of Christian spirituality, part of our own response, how we discern, how we read the runes and see what's going on. Benedict was a great figure for that. So he has left us with this rule, which was utterly groundbreaking. He's also left us with two things, which I won't spend too much time on now because of time, one of which is an idea which has come back very, very strongly which is about a rule for life. <coughs> this has returned. People think a lot now about establishing individual rules for living. He, of course, established a rule for living for a community. But there, there's now an awful lot around about establishing one's own rule for life. And we have oblates too and tertiaries, people who are attached 
to religious orders who have a rule for living which is rooted in that order. But if you want to establish your own rule for life, you can do that. And some of the key points are just jotted at the bottom of, of, of the book you can take away with you. But you might want to include a realistic assessment of who you are, what your life is like, what your constraints are, and what your temperament is. Once you have that in place, you can have a sense of how you can then meet your own needs to shape a rule of life. So if you're really, really busy with a lot of young children and very little time because of preparing for family life, then you can cut your spiritual cloth accordingly. If you're not in that situation, if you're at a time in your life when you have more time, when you don't have external pressures of other people around you, you can cut your spiritual cloth according to that. If you're somebody who finds it really difficult to sit in quiet, then don't sit in quiet. If you're somebody who likes that, use that. So a self-assessment. Then choose your disciplines in the, like of, in the light of the self-assessment. That could be contemplation, that could be walking, it could be whatever it happens to be. Give yourself a discipline according to who you are and make sure you have a form of accountability. This could be critical friend. Very often, of course, in, in the Christian tradition, it's a soul friend or a spiritual director. This is just a way of checking that you're not doing what we're all very capable of doing, which is fooling ourselves. So how easy it is to do that. So it's about self-assessment, finding a discipline, and finding a type of accountability. These are the rudiments of establishing a rule of life so that you can get some structure in your spiritual life. The other great discipline that we have been left with by Benedict is Lectio Divina. Now, he wasn't the only practitioner of Lectio, and it certainly isn't the only tradition in which Lectio takes place. But it is a way of reading scripture which is not about us imposing meaning, but allowing ourselves to be reached by scripture. It's holy listening, it's holy reading rather, holy reading. And there's a very simple way of doing Lectio. I used to go regularly with um, a church I was, I was with for a number of years, and we used to go to Dowie Abbey in Berkshire. Does anybody know Dowie Abbey, which is a great, a great Benedictine house? And one of the brothers there, Brother Gervais, would always give us from the parish a session of Lectio, Lectio Divina, and he would always start off by saying, I will read a sentence from scripture, and you will chew it like a cow chewing the cud. So we all did it. He read one, just one line from scripture, and we chewed, 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 chewed. And the idea of Lectio is not that you think, oh yes, that means that. You chew it. And then whoever, you could do it yourself, by yourself, but it's great in a group as well. And then the same sentence is read again. You chew some more. And then, everybody, if it's a group, everybody is invited to say a word that springs up for them. Could be anything. It doesn't, and it shouldn't be, well, this passage means this or that. It's, let's imagine that you hear um, John 3.16 about, like, uh, Jesus, uh, God loved us that he gave his only son, that passage. 
So let's imagine that rather than saying, well, this means theologically that this happened and that happened, what you're thinking is, no, what is it? This time I hear this sentence, what occurs to me? And it could be that for somebody, what occurs to them is only, his only son. And it could be that somebody else is gave. People might have suddenly have, find they hear this sentence in a new way and it's a word that pops out to them and sudden something happens to them. It's not about trying to dominate the text, but allowing yourself to be interrogated by the text. And then whoever is holding the session, fine, thank you. Nobody comments on anybody else's response. Everybody has their own response. It's probably just a word. Nobody else is allowed to comment. And then it's read again. The same line may be read again. And everybody is then invited to say in one word how they are going to respond to the word that God has given them. So let's say somebody responds to the word gave. Then their response might be give back. It could be anything. So what you get is this incredibly spacious time of prayer in relation to scripture. No heavy interpretation, no desire to master, but just to allow oneself to be spoken to. This is holy reading. And this kind of surrendered reading actually holds sway any time when we read scripture. There can be this great impulse to, oh, what does this mean? Understand, understand. You, or you could just sit back and see what God's saying to you. I mean, it's not rocket science, is it? But it's something to do with how much we don't allow ourselves to be spoken to. We try and speak over something. So Benedict has left us with Lectio. He's left us with structured, ordered shape. He's left us with some great principles about obedience and stability and allowing ourselves to be transformed by being faithful to whatever rule we have. One thing I'm going to leave you with as we say goodbye to Benedict is of these three vows, I wonder which you would find it most difficult to live out. Would it be stability, staying put, just not going anywhere, but being utterly committed to a particular group? Would it be obedience in our individualistic, rather atomised world? Could you submit yourself to being obedient to somebody else? Would it be allowing yourself to be transformed through the fidelity to the rule? Which would mean, if you came across something you did not like in yourself, you couldn't sidestep it.